Yeah, welcome. Welcome to you who are here. I'm really grateful and, and glad that um, you could join us today. If, um, yeah, particularly if, if you're new today, uh, you don't regularly worship here, uh, we're really uh, thankful that you're here, uh, that you found us, and um, we don't believe it's an accident. So hopefully um, during our time, uh, during your time here, you can connect with some folks, uh, some of the wonderful people here at Harvest, and uh, we can get to know each other and stay in touch even after uh, today is done. Last night, um, we had a uh, meeting uh, for our cell church ministry uh, leaders. We call them shepherds as they shepherd the, the flock of God. And at the end of the meeting, uh, some people had left, and a few of us were just sitting around talking, and um, Eugene and Joyce Kwok were talking about this TV show that they've been watching. Um, they didn't know what it was called as on Animal Planet, but it's something, uh, the idea is people who hoard pets. Have anyone seen this show before? <laughs> animal hoarders okay thank you <laughs> thank you uh okay if you want to watch it uh, you can go to danny chen's house he's got a t-vote uh, the last eight weeks okay animal hoarders and the basic premise is that these people it is what it says it is they hoard animals and so uh, they're telling us about um there's this w- woman who um hoards cats and she's got 86 cats in her house that's disgusting i well um, I know some. I know some of us in here are, are cat lovers, but um, you know I'm not. But for to have 86 of them is absolutely uh, that is evil. And they, they're saying how like they would um, sometimes, you know, they would just do whatever they want wherever they want, and they would um, cats would urinate in the. I don't know how this would happen, but they would urinate in the outlets in the electrical sockets. So that electricity in the house would go out. And so they had like uh, extension cords all over the house because certain sockets were broken and just crazy kind of stuff. There would be people who hoard um, uh, uh, birds, people who hoard uh, dogs, chihuahuas. One of these things is enough, right? But they've got like multiple, multiple, multiple chihuahua dogs and they've got these dogs all around and and some people are saying you know what my grandma is a is an animal hoarder and i'm scared to i i don't like going to grandma's house because there's all these animals and and it's just scary for me to be there and as we're talking about it's like what in the world would possess people to have this many cats or this many snakes or this many chihuahuas and and they said the repeated theme is that somewhere along the life story of these hoarders There was some kind of a relationship that was broken, that was jacked up, and that they were hurt from that caused them to say, you know what? The only kind of relationship that I can have that will not hurt me is with a cat. And another cat, and another cat, until there's 86 of them. That is one sick individual. So much hurt that they... They, they, they try and protect themselves from this relational pain by having relationships with not like whatever relationships, but having all these like different pets around them in order to assuage uh, the feelings of hurt and pain within their heart. You know, it's not uh, doesn't take a long glimpse at uh, Fox News or MSNBC or uh, Orlando Sentinel to see that the great majority of problems in our world on the front page stem from relational conflict. Think about the, the, the issues in Egypt because they, people cannot get along. You hear about the protests in, in, in different countries. You hear about road rage and, and the, uh, the, the, just the chilling uh, aftermath of what happens when someone gets cut off and they go and they, and they end up getting angry and, and, and taking it out on the person who cut them off. 
all these things happen because of uh, the inability for us to get along with each other. It's interesting because this is an age-old problem. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could not get along. They started blaming one another, and they started pointing fingers. And then they had children, and then Cain and Abel, two brothers. And one was jealous of the other, and so he ended up killing him. And it's gone on and on and on and on like that throughout time. And then Jesus Christ comes into our world, and he lives and he dies and doesn't have any relational conflict. That was his own fault, but he took the fall for other people. And then some years after him, after Jesus came and uh, lived and died and and then uh, ascended into heaven, came this man, the Apostle Paul. And he begins writing and talking about the wonder of what Christ did and the beauty of the gospel. And he says, is it possible that if the gospel changes everything about our world and changes everything about our individual lives and changes everything about our culture, that the gospel can really transform our relationships with one another? Is the gospel really that big? Is it really that practical? Is it really that personal? That's a question that I want to ask for the next few weeks is what? does the gospel have to do in a practical sense with our everyday relationships with one another? Can the gospel really make a difference? Can the gospel really transform individual lives and your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your friends, your relationship with your ex-girlfriend, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your teacher? Can it, is the gospel really big enough to do that? And do we believe that it's big enough for that to happen? As we look into this, we're just going to kickstart um, this series by looking at one verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And when Paul thinks about this, he's saying, you think about all of, the, all of the, 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 this rising rate of divorce. You think about the, the rising rate of juvenile delinquency. You think of all of the tension between uh, office workers and, and their bosses, between students and their teachers. He says, all of this can be resolved if you heed and take to heart this one simple yet life-changing verse. What is this? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul, the inspired apostle, author, writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, is writing God's word to us. And he says it very simply. If there's one thing that I would say, if there's one solution to all of the ills and our relational difficulties, it would be this this one very simple and yet challenging exhortation. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What in the world does that mean? Three things that we see uh, from these one, two, three, four, eight, or nine words. Uh, Three things that we want to pull out here. The first thing is that relationships are destroyed by selfishness. Relationships are destroyed by selfishness. By nature, the default mode of every human heart is to want to be selfish. I think we learn this growing up as children, infants and toddlers, understand what it is to be selfish, right? You've heard these this emails that's been going around. Maybe it's so, it's so old that it's new to some of y'all, but it's the kind of thing that, that talks about a toddler, an infant's rules of property. How do you know that something belongs to me, according to an infant? They say, well, if... If I am holding it, then it's got to be mine, right? If it looks like something that I used to have, then it's got to be mine. If I want it, then it's got to be mine. If I saw it first, then it's got to be mine. If at any point in time I was touching it, then it's got to be mine. But if it's broken, then it's yours, right? Isn't this how infants and toddlers and children think? That everything is about me. Everything is about me. And when 
we have infants like that. It can be cute. But when we have adults and teens who are like that, then it's not very cute. Because selfishness destroys relationships. How many times, in, as you think about the relational strife in, in your life, is it because of one or the other person's, one or the other party's selfishness? There is a um, cartoon, a Peanuts cartoon. Uh, Peanuts is the cartoon with Charlie Brown and Snoopy. And, and Charlie Brown and, and Lucy, a girl named Lucy, are, are kind of talking. And um, this, this, it wasn't really funny, uh, not in the ha-ha sense at least. It's not funny, but um, they're on the playground, and Lucy is swinging on a swing, and Charlie Brown is just kind of sitting there reading a newspaper. And he's reading to Lucy, and he says, look, it says that every year, once a year, the earth revolves around the sun. And Lucy says, around the sun, are you sure? I thought the earth revolved around me. And again, it's not, it's not that, the, oh, that's such a knee slapper. I thought it revolved. It's not funny in that sense. It's, it's funny because I think that describes the philosophy of life of most human beings. That when it all comes down to it, we think we want the world to revolve around us. And if things are not going our way in this relationship, then I'm just going to clam up. I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to start blaming them about it. How many times in your relationships has it been uh, your selfishness that has caused pain in the other person's life? See, Paul makes it clear, and we see this throughout the pages of Scripture, that it's selfishness that undermines and destroys every human relationship. This, uh, you know, I was doing this, writing this, putting this message together and praying about it. And I was just being um, just challenged in, in so many different ways. Uh, repenting of, as I thought about relationships that were broken and, and why were they or, or not the way that they ought to be in, in, in my life. And why are they like that? And just constantly goes back to my own selfishness and wanting people to meet my needs. And, and, and wanting people to, to cater to my needs and to work around me and to work around what I want. And, and I was, God, forgive me. I was repenting and I was confessing. And, and yet I realized this ugly demon continues to rear its ugly head in my life. I just want everything to revolve around me. And I, I hate the fact that it, it, it is that way. But I know that God is working in my heart and he's challenging me and he's stripping me of these things. But I realized that how deeply this undercuts uh, the very essence of loving relationship. Last week, um, basically our morning routine is our daughter, Manny. For those of you who don't know, she's about a year and three, four months old. Um, she would wake up about 7 o'clock, 7.30, and she starts crying, and we hear it in the monitor. And there's always this, this uh, Olivia and I, uh, my wife and I are like, okay, who's going to get her? It usually ends up being, being her. So she'll get her, and she'll play with her. If I get her, I'll play with her for a little bit, maybe like 30 minutes, give her some milk and stuff like that. Um, and then... Uh, we'll switch and I'll uh, get some rest while Olivia um, feeds her breakfast and things like that. And usually that's how it is. We do this back and forth thing. Last week, um, one morning, Olivia went to get Manny early in the morning and she, she got her and was, was playing with her. And um, she said, I, I need a break. And it was time for me to uh, get ready to go to, uh, to come into church and things like that. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll take her. And so I was playing with, with Manny for a little bit. And Olivia's like, just get, I need 30 minutes to just close my eyes. So uh, Manny and I are playing, and uh, you know we're having a, a good old time doing whatever it is that we do. And um, she's trying to say words, and I'm trying to, to teach her things, and, and we're, we're playing. And after about 10 minutes, um, she starts kind of uh, wandering off on her own and playing with her toys. And so I said, well, I'm going to um, check what's going on in, in, uh, in Egypt and check my email and things like that. And 
while I was doing that, I uh, wasn't really paying attention to Manny. Manny just kind of uh, saunters back into um, Olivia's room. And she starts uh, shaking her, uh, shaking her bed sheets, and saying "amma, amma," which means "mommy, mommy, um, come play with me," because you know daddy's ignoring me, and I want you to play with me. So she's sh- shaking the sheets, and um, I, I, I knew in my mind that Manny had wandered off over there, but um, same time I was so fixated on on reading some of the things that I was reading that um, I didn't bother. I it had been 15 minutes, not quite 30, but about 15 minutes, and so maybe it's time for Olivia will feel like she's gotten some, um, gotten enough rest, and and is ready to come out, and so. Uh, Manny is shaking and she's shaking. And she, so finally, I, I go into the bedroom and Olivia's sitting up with Manny, and Manny's happy because mommy's woken up. Um, but mommy's not very happy that she's been woken up. And so she picks Manny up and she walks out of the room. And being an astute and, and wise husband, I followed her and I said, Hey, um, are, you, are you mad? <laughs> and she said, Yes. I said, Are you mad at Manny or at me? And she said, At you. I said, Why? And she said, uh, because you couldn't hold her and watch her for 10 minutes, right? She, uh, she meant 10 more minutes because I'd, I'd already been with her for five minutes. So you couldn't watch her for, for, for 10 minutes. And my first thought was, what's the big deal? I need, to, I need to get up and go and get ready to go anyways. You had to get up. Second thought that came to my mind was, dang, you are so selfish, David. And all these thoughts were coming to my mind. I'm preparing this sermon. Selfishness kills relationships. And the first thought that comes to my mind is, what's the big deal? Second thought is, man, you are you're a living example of how this first point is being proved true. So my third thought was, yeah, you need to go and, and apologize and ask for forgiveness. And my fourth thought was, out of these first three thoughts, I think I like the first one the best. But it wasn't a multiple choice exam. And so I knew that uh, with um, for the sake of clear conscience, I had to go and I had to say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me for being selfish, for not giving you the time that you needed. I, I realize that it's so true that um, usually when things go wrong in my relationship with Olivia, it's because of my selfishness, because I want things and I want it my way and I want it when I want it. How about in, in your relationships? How many times in your relationship with your, with your children your relationship with your parents? Is the disruption in the relationship because of your selfishness? Because, Mom, you don't understand me. You don't understand. Why do you need the car? I need the car. Let me take it out. Why, why do you have to do all these? Why are you telling me to do all this stuff? Just let me be. How many times is, is, is the devastation in our relationships because we're so selfish? Our inability to, and, and unwillingness to want to bend for the sake of the other person. You know, Paul understands this to be true, and so he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I know when we hear this word, we think this is a bad word, it's a dirty word, because we think of submission, we think of uh, MMA, or we think of WWF and WWE, and, and to submit is to acknowledge weakness. It means to tap out and to take the low road and take the easy way out. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be the weak one. Why am I the doormat? And Paul's saying that's not what submission is. That's not what submission is. It's not to tap out. In fact, this is to take the high road. This is to do what's more noble, because any fool can be selfish and do what you want to do. But it takes a real man, it takes a real woman to say, I'm going to submit to you. Basically, literally what submit means, it means to put yourself under the ranks of somebody else, to put their desires before your own, to treat them as better than yourself so that they might be lifted up. He says we need to submit. That's what it's about. 
It's about seeking their best interest before our own. How much of our relationships have been derailed because we sought only our own interests and have not sought the other interests of the other person? And so the first thing he says is submit. But the second thing that we see is that every relationship is a two-way street. And this is very important here. So he says, submit to one another. I know uh, you're thinking about this and you're like, you know what? Yeah, that's cool, D.L. I know that relationships suffer because of selfishness. But here's the deal. It's not my selfishness. It's theirs. I know we've all got relationships like that. Where our relationships are suffering because another person has been selfish. And we're probably thinking to ourselves, you know what? I hope, I hope that he is taking good notes right now. I hope my husband is listening to this. Or I hope my friend is, he's not here today, but they better listen to the podcast. Oh my gosh, they need to hear this. And you're thinking in your mind about all these things. And I think the beauty of what Paul says is he says, submit to one another. Saying there's a mutual relationship here. There is a reciprocity because every relationship is a two-way street. Yeah, they're selfish to you, but how many times have you been selfish Towards them. You see, God's concern is not how other people are treating you first and foremost. That's not his concern. It's not you wait for them to do. His concern is how you respond to them. And his concern for them is how they respond to you. But that's not our concern is, is what about them? What about them? It's, it's about what about me? See, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this. He says, if you've done something wrong and you come into the wor- to worship, you've done something wrong against somebody else, then you go to them and you fix that thing. Later, he says in Matthew 18, he says, you got a relationship with somebody and they did something wrong to you, then you go do something about it. In both cases, saying whether you did something wrong or they did something wrong, the impetus is on you. It's about what you're being called to do. Not wait. He doesn't say wait for them to acknowledge and then say, okay, you know, I was waiting for you to do that. I forgive you. He says, you go to them first. In every situation, the impetus is on us. And he says, submit to one another. You do this thing first. That's what he's saying. And I know we can count the number of relationships that have been jacked up because another person has just been completely selfish. But that's not Paul, nor is it God's concern here, nor nor should that be our concern first and foremost. The concern should be, what is God calling me to do in order to put the interests of others before my own? You know, a lot of times this helps when we can begin to see through uh, the other person's eyes. A lot of times we, uh, we tend to rate our motivation a lot higher than other people's motivation because we don't see through their eyes. If somebody is, is, is uh, late, for instance, if somebody's late, we say, you know what, they, just, uh, they, they, should have, they should have allotted more time. If we're late, we say, oh, we just, I was just way too busy. I had so, much, so many things going on. We tend to judge other people's motivation And we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But what if it was the other way around? What if we began to step into the shoes of of our spouse? Or what if we began to step into the shoes of our our child and understand what is he feeling? What is she feeling? What if we begin to think and and step into the the sandals of our mom and dad? As they tell us to study, what, what are they thinking? What's motivating them to do that? What's driving that? As they give us gifts and we know that we want time and they give us $100 and and all I want is for mom and dad to spend time with me. If we could get into their shoes and understand why is it that they're doing that and try and, and seek to understand, you know what? It's a lot harder to step on somebody's toes when you're walking in their shoes. It's a lot harder to step on somebody else's toes when we're walking in their shoes. What if we began to, to try and see things through their eyes? 
This is what um, American, American Airlines, before it became American Airlines, was called American Airways. And, and they had this crazy problem with uh, losing luggage. And, you know, this is it's a perpetual problem because it's still happening today. But um, they were just absolutely awful and, and inefficient in trying to track down lost luggage. And so they're trying to find out how can they rectify the situation. They, they, they did all of these different things but realized that they couldn't uh, come up with a solution. So one day um, – their CEO, their director of, of this department, called in all of the area directors from the local airports together and brought them in uh, for a conference to discuss this. And along the way, he made sure that every single one of them lost their luggage. And they got together. He said, after that meeting, as these people lost their luggage, their efficiency and their ability to handle lost luggage exponentially skyrocketed. went through the roof because they began to understand and see things through the perspective of the customer. When before, they were just saying, this is a nuisance to my day. But then they began to realize and, and see things through their eyes. It would be a lot easier for us to begin to submit to one another if we began to see things uh, through other people's eyes. And then we begin to put other people's interests before our own. Submit to one another, it says... In essence, what he's saying, here's what he's saying. If we just bottom line it, here's what he's saying. Treat other people better than they treat you. That's, all, that's what he's saying. Treat other people better than they treat you. What if we begin to live that way? That's that person who sends text messages to you. You write them a, a crazy long text message, and they write back just saying one word, one letter. I know, I know so I've talked to some of y'all who hate that, right? You hate when people write back and they write K, and that's it. What the heck? What am I supposed to do with that? And you know that's how they text all the time. What if instead of, instead of just being short with them and saying, okay, fine, I'm just going to be curt with them and say, see you at five or whatever. You, you just wrote, you treated them better than yourself. and You begin to write them a, a normal message. Or you know there's a person who's always going to be picking out your faults. And you enter into that conversation ready to be on the defensive. But what if you began to treat them better than they treat you? Could it be that you'd be adding value to their life, but at the same time doing the same to yours? Because what good is it if we counter their disobedience to Scripture with our own disobedience to Scripture? And how much does that show the transforming power of the gospel in our lives? if we treat other people the exact same way that they treat us. There, there was a time during the, the, the Civil War where um, Robert E. Lee, Confederate general, he was, um, there was this other, other general, Confederate general, called General Whiting, who was really jealous of, of General Lee. And so he would like talk, just insult him and gossip about him and spread all these bad rumors about him. And so the Confederate president, I forget who, who it was, I think it was Jefferson Davis, um, wanted to promote this General Whiting to a, a higher position in the army. And so he went to Robert E. Lee and he asked him, what is your opinion of General Whiting? And General Lee said, well, I think he's an amazing man. I think he's a, a great general. I think he would do a fabulous job if you were to give him this promotion. And there were some other officers there who were listening. And so uh, President Je Jefferson Davis said, okay, thank you very much. And he left. And so some of these officers were like, Did it, have, you not, have you forgotten what General Whiting said about you? And what, what General Lee said was just so amazing and so powerful. He said, if I'm not mistaken, President Davis asked for my opinion of General Whiting, not General Whiting's opinion of me. 
Right? He took the high road. Realized, what good is it going to do if I begin to just talk badly about him? What if I begin to submit myself to him? If I begin to think about his interests before my own? See, every relationship, every relationship is a two-way street. And so he says, submit to one another. But up until this point, I, I think we could have heard uh, any motivational speaker, any kind of a, a new age talk that tells us this. But what, 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 what Paul is writing is, what does a gospel have to do with this? How does a gospel transform our relationships with other fellow human beings? The last thing, and I think this is the most important thing here, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In every relationship, in every relationship, there's a third party. Okay, in every relationship, there's a third party. And so he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He doesn't say submit to one another so that you can prove that you're a better person or submit to one another because they're stronger than you or submit to one another because they're more right than you or because they're smarter than you. He says submit to one another. Why? Not because you think about what's best for you or you think about what's best for them, but you think about what Christ would want in this relationship. He says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says what if we began to see that this relationship is not simply about you and me, but there's always a third party involved in this relationship. And every, you know, we confess this every time we get married. Every time you go to a marriage ceremony and you make a, a renewal of your vows, you say, I covenant between God and man and all these witnesses and with one another. But you're understanding that your relationship, every relationship, there's a third party and that God is always involved. And he says, so out of your reverence for Christ, submit to one another. You've heard stories of this all the time where, you say, any friend of yours is a friend of mine, right? Even though I don't really like them because you like them, I'll like them. Uh, I, I remember this is well illustrated in one of the great TV shows in the 90s, uh, Saved by the Bell. And it's a great, one really cool episode. Um, I think it was called uh, Palm Springs Vacation or something like that, where um, Jessie Spano and her crew go out to, to Palm Springs for her dad's wedding. So Jessie's dad is divorced, um, and so she's, uh, he's about to remarry. And so they go out there, and, and, and Jessie's really excited. She's like, I can't wait to meet my future new mother-in-law. And so she's uh, really excited, and the, the gang is out there, and they're, they're, they're playing around. And, and so finally, they, they, they meet Leslie, and she's really young. She's an aerobics instructor. She's really attractive. In fact, it's so attractive that Zach Morris tries to hit on her, but then he realizes realize later, he's like, oh, my gosh, Jessie, I hit on your dad's uh, fiance. But um, Jessie uh, is the only person not thrilled about this idea. Because she's young, she's attractive, she's everything that Jesse wants to be. But most importantly, she's nothing like her mother. And so she does everything that she can to make that week a living nightmare for Leslie. She does everything that she can. She insults her, she talks about her, she lies about her, she cancels appointments um, between uh, dates between uh, Leslie and her dad without without telling anybody, and just all kinds of evil things, malicious things. And at the end, when she, she realized that she's not going to be able to cancel the wedding, they're not going to call the wedding off, she says, okay, I'm not going to go. And so she leaves. And as always, there's a voice of reason. And so in this episode, it was Zach Morris, and he takes his golf cart as, as Jesse is, is walking away, stomping away angry, and Zach chases her down. And, and he basically says to her, you know what? You're going to regret this for the rest of your life. If you don't do this because of Leslie, that's fine. But out of your love for your dad, uh, you need to be here. And so she says, Zach, you're right. You're always right. And so she gets in the golf cart and she says, I hope we can make it on time. And they get there and, and all three of them have this like beautiful moment. 
I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad I came also. And they hug it out and all this stuff. But she realized that out of, out of her love and out of her respect and out of her reverence for her dad, she realized that she could love somebody that was otherwise unlovable. This is, this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sometimes you have a hard time loving the other person, but realize that there's always a third party. And the way that we love Jesus in this relationship, Jesus who is in heaven and you can't see him, you can't physically wrap your arms around him. The way that you love Jesus is by loving that person and treating them as better than yourself. This word submission, I think you'd be interested to know. The Arabic word for submission uh, is Islam. The Islamic religion, a religion of submission, is completely predicated upon one very fearful idea. You submit to your God, Allah, because he demands it. And so you submit. What Paul is saying here is completely different. He's saying you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You submit to Christ not because he demands it, but you submit to Christ because he demonstrates it. He does that first for you. And then you can see that he does that for other people. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you realize that Jesus Christ came to submit himself to you? Do you realize that all of Jesus' desires were surrendered and were submitted to your desires? Do you realize that everything that Jesus did was to subordinate himself underneath you so that you could be lifted up to a higher level so that one day you could be with him in heaven? See, Jesus came and he tells us to do only that which he has already done for us and only that which he has done for us so that we can have the motivation and the means and the power to do the same thing. That Jesus on the night he was betrayed went and he washed the feet of his disciples. He treated them better than he would better than they would, treat him, they would treat him. And he treats us a whole lot better than we treat him as well. And sometimes that's what it takes for us to realize. We have a hard time loving somebody. We have a hard time submitting to somebody. We think about the fact that Jesus has done that very thing, not only for us, but he's done that for them. Can you see, maybe if we could just get in our mind's eye a picture of that person that we just have such a hard time loving, that even this week their selfishness has ruined our week. Just get in, in, your, in your mind's eye a picture of that person. And then can you see in that place Jesus coming and kneeling down and taking off his outer garment and wrapping a towel around his waist and, and washing their feet. And then just a few short hours later, Jesus would go to the cross. He would climb up the mountain called Golgotha and he would hang and he would be nailed and he would be pierced. For your sins and for mine. But also for the sins of your parents but also for the sins of your spouse, 
but also for the sins of that person who has cheated you, who's wronged you, who's gossiped about you, who's insulted you, who's talked about you, who's littered your Facebook wall with lies. Jesus has done that for them as well. And sometimes, like Donald Miller says, sometimes we have to see somebody loving something, someone, before we can begin to love them ourselves. And Paul is saying, this is the work of the gospel. Without Jesus Christ, this ethic is impossible. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about everything, the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Chapters 4 through 6 talk about the so what. Do we know the gospel in our heart of hearts in such a way that it transforms and touches our relationships so that we have a power to be bold at the same time we have a power to be humble. When we look at the cross, we realize how much our sin has destroyed our lives, but we realize at the same time how loved we are. That causes a humility unlike any other. It causes a boldness, boldness unlike any other. Has the gospel penetrated into our hearts so that it touches and affects and changes the culture and the ethos of the relationships that we have with others? As we uh, think about that, let's take a moment to pray and, and to reflect upon these relationships in our lives. Let's think about the ways in which maybe our selfishness has hurt and ruined others. Maybe not ruined for good, but has hurt them. Maybe this morning the Lord would be calling us to take a moment to confess our sins, first to the Lord God and then second to them. How has selfishness, your selfishness, hurt other people? So you think about that. Let's just take inventory of our relationships. And maybe God would be saying, hey, today, maybe you need to talk to somebody. And even though you're only respond, maybe you've only been selfish 15% of the time and they've been selfish 85%. Says you're still culpable for that part. And so we submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. Let's take a moment to, uh, to pray to the Lord and to ask uh, for his forgiveness where need be, to ask for uh, grace where need be, to, for strength, uh, so that we might, be able to, uh, we might be able to live out this teaching in light of the gospel. Let's take a few moments to pray together like that. Uh, and after that, we'll continue to pray as we prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. But Let's begin by praying over these relationships and asking God that he would come and he would minister to our hearts and just cleanse and forgive us from selfish desires and and selfishness.
So many times I think this table becomes redundant and it becomes mundane because we don't realize how much we need it. Because we think we're pretty good people because we come to church and because we have responsibilities at church, because we do certain things and and people look at us and they respect us. But the table of grace is given to people who are desperately aware of their need and those who most deeply understand that are most deeply transformed by the sacrament. So let's take some time as we think about the ways in which the gospel tells us and the cross tells us that Jesus didn't die for pretty good people. He died for people who are far worse than we could ever dare to dream that our motives, our desires, the things that we say, our selfishness is so deep-rooted, the ways that we talk to our parents, the ways that we subtly gossip about others, the ways in which we think badly about other people or objectify them, ways that we fail to step into their shoes and look from their perspective and are critical of others. The more we begin to understand and the more we begin to lay these sins out before the Lord, the more beautiful the grace of God tastes in our lives. Let's pray uh, just prayers of confession now. Just ask God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Reveal to me my sins. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Forgive me, Lord God, as I uh, repent of these things. Transform me so that grace would be amazing again in my life. So let's take some time. Let's take a couple minutes. It doesn't matter if you come to this table or not. What's pictured here is a reality of all of our needs. So let's take some time to confess these things before the Lord to receive his forgiveness. So let's continue to pray and examine our hearts as we prepare to enter into this time of sacrament. Father in heaven, as we come, that I'm so deeply aware of my need for a Savior. And I know that my sin is um, so much bigger than I can ever know. And as we often confess in song, I'll never know how much it cost to see all my sin upon that cross. 
pray, Lord God, that you would continue to convict us of our selfishness, how our selfishness causes us to not want to open up to mom and dad, how our selfishness causes us to want to just ignore what mom and dad say, how our selfishness causes us to just want our way all the time when we want it, how our selfishness causes us to ignore the pleas of our spouse, to ignore our, our friend's needs, to ignore the needs of our cell members or our Sunday school students in their time of brokenness. Father, would you forgive us, Lord God, and help us to see how desperately we need grace. Melt our selfish hearts, O God. Make them selfless like yours. Teach us how to love in the way that you've loved. And as we come to this table, pray that you would break us in gracious humility. We thank you and we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.